0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name's Andy Boyd. My guest today on the program is Marianne Worthington, author of the book The Girl Singer, which is a collection of poems. Marianne, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Andy. I'm glad to be here.
0: So I really enjoyed this book, and and I I'm I read some contemporary poetry, but it's not my sort of primary genre. I guess my question is, how common is it to have a book of poems that is kind of a? It almost reminded me of a song cycle on an album or something. That these these poems are all kind of about uh, similar similar themes and topics. Is that is that very common? Is this the first time you've done something like that?
1: It is the first time that I've done something like this, and, and I'm not sure how common it is, although the connections between poetry and singing and song, I think, are very, very close. So maybe even a poet will think about the musical qualities of language as she or he is writing without necessarily writing about music, per se.
0: Mm-hmm. What's your history with kind of folk music, country music, traditional music? I don't know what terminology you use, but, but what was what's your past with that that think- genre?
1: Yeah, I think the terms that we use just depend on on uh, what we heard growing up or how we've been schooled to think about music. But for me, primarily, I had parents who were um, very avid music listeners, but they listened primarily to either folk music, which would have been when I was coming up would have been Peter Paul and Mary, uh, even Bob Dylan was considered you know a folk singer in the early days, or they listened to straight up country music on the radio. Um, We didn't, we were a working class family, so we didn't have a lot of extra money, but my mother was a seamstress and I, I, I know that she used some of the money that she made from sewing to buy record albums. We did have stereo. So, um, one of the first records I ever remember hearing was Doc Watson's, um, Mm. debut recording from Vanguard records, who was a North Carolina folk singer. Um, and then we also went to church and, um, lucky for me about the only thing that remains in my church upbringing is music. I had a, a wonderful and beautiful um music teacher in the church who taught us a lot about music and hymnody and um I think I, I probably learned to read by looking so much at the hymn book when I was a child so those two things you know popular music and sacred music were in me from the very beginning I also took Piano lessons from the time I was six until I was, you know, eighteen or nineteen.
0: Mm-hmm. Was that also kind of how you got into poetry? I mean, there's there's a lot of great poetry in those old traditional songs.
1: Yes, there surely is. Um, I th- I don't I can't say that that's how I got into poetry, but it's something though. The, the hymnody and the hymn book and the poetry of hymns has stayed with me, and it's something that um, can never be erased from me, even though a lot of the doctrine from my early church bringing, up, upbringing ha, has disappeared. But... Um, um, <sighs> I can't say that it made me be a poet. I'm a late bloomer. I didn't go to college until I was 27. I worked right out of high school for almost a decade. And um, I studied writing in college, but it was not my major. And it Mm -hmm. wasn't until we moved to Kentucky in 1990 that I found a real lively and vibrant literary community. And that's when I really started writing poetry seriously.
0: Mm, Interesting. So this, this book is, as I said, kind of largely based on the idea of women in folk and country music, um, as the title would indicate, did, did you have to do a lot of research about that or was this kind of something that you knew well enough that you could just kind of pick up a pen and, and write these poems?
1: Some of it was intuitive because, um, as I said, my parents were great listeners to country music and they knew a lot about country music, even though they they didn't do anything but pay really good attention to what they heard on the radio and what they heard DJ say and what they saw on television. So some of it I learned from them. But, yes, I did spend a lot of time doing some research. I was lucky to get a fellowship at Berea College in Berea Kentucky in their special collections archives mm. where they house um all kinds of um sound archives so they had all of these early radio show music broadcast they had um, letters and and books and all kinds of really great sort of secret things about particular performers. Um, so it was wonderful. I spent a month at the at the library with that fellowship. So every day during uh, it was June, I would go into the library and just spend all day in the library you know until they closed. It was great. So and also just reading, you know, reading about country music. And um, I had written about country music in an academic way Mm -hmm. by um, going to conferences and things like that. Um, And so I had some I had some book learning, too. But um, so some of it was intuitive and some of it was purposefully sought out through research. Yes.
0: Mm -hmm. Would you like to read the poem, The Girl Singer, the title poem from the collection?
1: Sure, I'd be glad to. So, the girl singer is kind of a of a um, a composite of women that I saw growing up performing on television, um, but also it's sort of a um, the story of a woman who wants to be this singer, but she has all this knowledge about how she is just a girl singer which was kind of the way that men treated women in the business you know they they were the stars and then they had a quote girl singer unquote um as kind of a sidekick you know who was um um a part of the show, but not the headliner. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of an amalgamation of that. And also, if you know your murder ballads, you'll recognize several lyrics <laughs> from murder ballads in this poem. So this is the girl singer. How hard it was to hold my body against defeat and come to be known as just a girl singer by those men who said, we're doing you a big favor, Honey. Once, I sang the lonely songs I loved. The A minor chord on my black Gibson hummed lonesome as a grave. I strummed right through their promises, crying, oh, the dreadful wind and the rain. On stage, I was one notch Below the gap toothed hayseed in his checkered jacket and short pants, clowning around with me as his sidekick, and we'd laugh and laugh. I dug on your grave the better part of last night. Too sorrowful, they said, the bosses. Heard enough about sick hearted boys chasing aggravated beauties, poor orphan children dropping and dying in the snow. War was over, they said. Be old fashioned, but not too much. How hard it was to fetch my voice for chirpier songs. Oh, the cuckoo. She never hollers cuckoo. I wore down. I mourned the women killed in all the murder ballads I knew, bludgeoned, stabbed, drowned, floated downstream to the Miller's Cove. He made fiddle screws from her little finger bones. I had to quit singing our songs. Her clothes all wet and muddy. They laid her on a plank.
0: Great. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. Thank you. We were talking about the poetry in some of those old songs, and you know, our, our listeners won't have the, uh, the the printed poem in front of them, so they won't know you you italicize the, the quotations. Right. And that line he made fiddle screws from her little finger bones is from right. one of the murder ballads. And that is it just
1: is. Yeah. such it-
0: a chilling yeah. line.
1: Yeah, the whole song is actually quite chilling. It's it's called Oh the dreadful wind and the rain, and so what happens is one sister kills another and throws her in the river and she floats downstream to the Miller's cove and he pulls her out of the water and he actually makes a fiddle from her body. Um, you know, her rib cage becomes the body of the fiddle and she he uses her hair to make the strings and then he made fiddle screws from her little finger bones. Yeah, it's really creepy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but it's also, I mean, I don't know if the, how much this is the original intention, but certainly as you appropriate that line, it becomes a line about the ways that women are instrumentalized in country music and basically treated a- like an instrument rather than abs- like a creator.
1: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad you picked up on that because um, <laughs> that was certainly the intention. Thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah. I almost feel like if I were a poet, I wouldn't want to quote a line that's that that's that good. I don't know that I'd want to follow that, but, but I think you effectively uh, kind of weave it into what you're doing. Thank you. So, yeah, I mean, we, we could probably talk for the whole time about sexism in country music. Uh, I don't necessarily think we should, but I feel like we should address it that this is not just something in the past tense, that something like 85% of singers on country radio are still men. Uh, Despite the fact that I think when a lot of people think of country music, they think of Dolly Parton, they think of Shania Twain, they think of Lou Harris. It's not like there's a dearth of, you know, fantastic women artists in the genre, but they're just still not given their due. Um, Why do you think that? I mean, obviously, that gender division used to be as strong in a lot of genres, but it seems like it's it's persisted that way in country music. Why do you think that is?
1: I'm not sure. I know, other than to say, I think that's just how our our structure is built. I think uh, systemic patriarchy is just part of the system, and that you know men were always granted the power to be the managers and the and the caretakers and the the people who ran the shows, and not a lot of women were able to do that. I mean, if you think about Dolly Parton and the fact that she was. Porter Wagner's, quote, girl singer, you know, for many years. And when she wanted to have more control over her um, own career and her own destiny, he just did everything he could think of to try to get her to stay. And part of that, I think, is because he knew he was not going to be so popular without Dolly Parton, you know. Um, and so people like Dolly Parton and even Loretta Lynn, who, who had some control in the studio, um, and, and even Patsy Cline, who didn't have a lot of control in the studio, but complained loudly about not having a lot of control in the studio. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, those were the women who sort of paved the way for, um, for women today. And also I just think this, oh, and I should say also, Andy, that I kind of have a really, um, um, conservative view of, of country music in the fact that I don't really consider country music much past 1975. I don't (laughs) listen to, I don't listen to country music on the radio because I don't care for that bro country and Mm -hmm. all those hats and, you know, and all that. But you're right. I mean, it is a, um, women have had to fight and they're still fighting, you know, I think we see that too in the fact that there are less black people and people of color in country music. Now that is changing with, um, you know, stars like, um, um,
0: Mickey Guyton.
1: Yes. Yes. Mickey Guyton and uh, Mm -hmm. Rhiannon Giddens and Mm -hmm. Amethyst key and Valerie June and Yola and, um, you know, some of those Brittany Spencer's another one, Miko Marks, but, um, there weren't a lot of black people and people of color in early country music
0: either. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I, I recently watched a, a documentary about these questions in country music. And one of the things that it pointed out is that even when black people have made country music in the past, it's often not thought of as country music. So even Ray yes. Charles with modern sounds in country and Western music uh, is it, yes. it not played on country radio, which is right. absurd to me. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And um, and, you know, the 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 truth is that a lot of country music like a lot of popular music, no matter the genre, was taken from Black people, stolen and appropriated, and used. Uh, the banjos, the the prime example, mm-hmm. an instrument that came from Africa, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the one of the artists that I admire the most that's working today is Rhiannon Giddens because mm-hmm. she has that teaching artist. Quality where she will say to an audience here's the roots of this song and let me tell you it comes from black people you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so um that's an aspect of country music that is not pretty so the sexism the racism in country music is is something that i really struggle with yes
0: Yeah. yeah it's also ironic too that it seems like what is called sort of alternative country is in some ways closer to what country music was before 1975 than what actually gets played on country music radio. Like if you want to hear somebody who's, who's, you know, seriously engaging with the legacy of someone like Hank Williams, you're not going to find that on the mainstream country stations.
1: That's, that's exactly right, you know. And that's one of the reasons why Emmylou Harris, I think, has always been so important to me and so popular to me mm-hmm. is that she taught all of us how to go back and find the original artist for those all those songs that she recorded. I remember being in the car with my father in 1973, and Emmylou Harris's first song came on the radio, If I Could Only Win Your Love. And my father and I always thought listen to country music together when we were in the car we'd never heard this song and my father said to me who is that woman singing that old living Brothers song and I said who are the (laughs) living brothers (laughs) you know so so yeah you're right I think alternative country or Americana music Mm -hmm. is much closer to old style country music than what we hear on um, popular country music radio today absolutely
0: you ha- you have a poem about the great folk singer Hazel Dickens, who yes. is also known as a as an activist and a quite outspoken, you know, left wing pro worker, pro labor uh, activist. Yes, um, yes. It, are, in, in that poem, are you partially trying to sort of remind readers that? Appalachia, that the South has a tradition of left-wing politics and that, that that's a you know maybe calling for a bit of a revival of that tradition.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely, because she was. She was a rabble rouser and and um devoted her life to singing benefits at miners' rallies, you know, miners who were on strike. She sang against uh mining company politics. Her brothers had worked in in the mines in West Virginia. Um, And and a lot of her family, when the the coal mines dried up in West Virginia, a lot of her family moved to Baltimore. And that's why she moved to Baltimore. She followed her family up there. And it was um, getting to meet Mike Seeger, who was probably single-handedly did more to revitalize folk music in the 1960s than anybody. She became friends with him, and um, and that's kind of how her career started. But yeah, and also, you know, the the other thing about Hazel Dickens is that she's one of the first women in bluegrass music. So there's another area of uh, offshoot of, of country music that didn't have a lot of women performers. And so Hazel Dickens and Alice Gerrard, when they made their first record together, you know, it was bluegrass music and that was unheard of, you know? Yeah. So yeah, there's a, there's a history of, of left-wing politics. And, uh, uh, even in poetry too, you know, Don West, who was a pretty famous, uh, union organizer, um, grew up in North Georgia and ended up in West Virginia. He was also known not only as a poet, but, but as a left wing, um, organizer, you know, um,
0: would you like to read Barn Dance Roadshow next?
1: Sure. <clears throat> sure. This is a poem about, um, <clears throat> just how women had to, um, you know, travel with men and, uh, and uh, be kind of on their their time. Barn Dance Roadshow. Hungry as she was for fame, she never thought they'd change her name or dress her up in homely cloth and make her say those scripted jokes. She never thought She'd have to ride the waves of heat all summer long to hawk the barn dance radio in close school halls and fairground tents. No one said she'd bear alone the blues, the cramps, the damp-filled nights, the silhouettes on hotel walls where her name in secret she would write in letters of bright gold. She couldn't know the sacrifice to sing the lonely song she loved would be rough travel with quarrelsome men who never guessed her given name and didn't give a damn anyway.
0: Great. Thank you. That poem has such a great rhythm to it when you hear it out loud. I, I don't know that that occurred to me when I read it on the page.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I worked really hard to make this sort of a a song poem with um, with particular rhythm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Is this poem about a specific singer or is it also sort of an amalgamation of, of different experiences?
1: It is an amalgamation, but it was prompted after I read in the archives at Berea College about a singer um, and, and I forget what her name was, Linda, something. Anyway, she was at the Renfro Valley Barn Dance, and she was on tour with these men for um, she was a radio star. And she had been sort of a a nightclub singer, and she lived in Chicago and she was sort of discovered and brought to Kentucky. Actually, I think she was on the national barn dance first, and that was in Chicago, but eventually she came to Kentucky, and they the men, you know, rearranged her persona so that she was no longer a nightclub singer, but this really sweet, you know, homely. Woman in a bonnet who would Mm -hmm. sing these, you know, songs of hearth and home. And while she was on tour, she had an attack of appendicitis, and everyone just ignored her, and she just became really sick, and her appendix appendix burst, and she died. And Mm -hmm. so then she was sort of immortalized as this, you know, this. famous barn dance singer, when in fact, you know, she'd been this nightclub singer in Chicago. Wow. Uh, it's a really interesting story. Yeah.
0: It's always so interesting to me how, like, the length people will go to to manufacture a sense of authenticity. You yes.
1: Know? Yes. Yes. And I think that that was really important because, you know, the early barn dance radio shows even though they were on radio, especially the National Barn Dance, which was in Chicago, but this was before the FCC had rules about how how you could transmit. And so you could hear it all over the country. You Mm -hmm. could hear the National Barn Dance radio show all over the country. But even though it was a radio show, there was a live audience. So that's why the singers always dressed in costume and um, why all the jokes were scripted and um, why the performers had these names and why they had to look a certain way because of the live audience that, you know, would go to the shows.
0: So they said they had to look the part.
1: They had to look the part. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like there's kind of a a tension for you as a fan of this music between you know that we talked about that he made fiddle screws from her little finger bones. That just the the the, the real honest poetry of traditional music with that kind of I don't know hokey uh, packaging that it's so often presented in.
1: Yes, I do struggle with that, and it's one of the reasons that I wrote the book. And I have a love hate relationship with it, mm-hmm. like. I can remember being, as a child, I remember waiting on Saturday afternoons for the Porter Wagner show to come on TV so I could see Dolly. And not only did I want to hear what song she was going to sing, and I had no idea, by the way, that she had written most of those songs. I wanted to see what she was going to wear because no woman in my life dressed like Dolly Parton, you know.
0: <laughs> I don't um, think that's just your life, Marianne. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and nobody had hair like that. And and I can say the same thing for Loretta Lynn, although she dressed a little bit more conservatively mm-hmm. on the television show that she was on. But um, but yeah, those costumes and um, the costumes, especially that um, people like um, Nudie, the tailor and Manuel, um, his student, Who's also a tailor? I think Manuel's probably um, still working. How they made those glittery costumes and how that caught on. You know, it was the singing cowboys who wore those costumes first. People like Roy Rogers and and Dale Evans, and then in California. Um, The Maddox Brothers and Sister Rose, which was a hillbilly Mm -hmm. band, they started wearing those costumes and then it really took off, you know, Mm -hmm. and I was in love with those costumes, hokey as they were. And part of it was because my mother made. Costumes for a lot of people. She made choir costumes. She sewed a lot of the costumes that the University of Tennessee majorettes wore on the field at football games. Oh wow! But yeah, you know. So I had that kind of experience of glitter and and um, sparkle and all of that um, lavish material in my mother's living room when I was a kid. So I think that's one of the reasons why I like it. But yeah, I do struggle with that sort of hokiness and persona and the authenticity of the music Mm -hmm. and and the lyrics yeah
0: but at the same time it seems like you're expressing that for you as like a working class kid there was something really exciting about seeing that kind of glitz and glamour from country stars that you wouldn't have wanted to see somebody up there in you know, overalls and a work shirt, but, you know, you right. want to, you want to see the, right. you want to see the costumes that, you know.
1: Yes. Yes. Although there were men who did wear overalls and work shirts as part of their costume, you know, right. and they had a particular persona, but you learn to recognize performers by their costumes, you know, mm-hmm. um, or at least I did when I was a kid. So, yeah.
0: Um. I want to talk about another aspect of your career, which is you're the co-founder of Still, which is a journal dedicated to uh, writing from the Appalachian region. Um, yes. Could you talk about kind of how you founded that journal and kind of what you're trying to, to do with it? Are you Are you trying to kind of rewrite people's received ideas about that region or... Maybe yes. it's less of a programmatic uh, <laughs> point.
1: Well, well I, I could say that I think that that was our main goal in the very beginning is that um, there's still all these stereotypes about what Appalachian people are. And those stereotypes come from people who don't live in the region. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say that there is a, a hint of truth to every stereotype, but but um, there Still today, we have so many stereotypes about the region. So, one of the things that we wanted to do when we founded the magazine, and I had two other co founders, was we wanted to feature writers, musicians, and artists who could tell their own story. Here's my story about Appalachia. Here's my story about what it means to be in Appalachia. That meant including black voices, people of color, queer voices trans voices we wanted to um, include those because we wanted to show the complexity of the Appalachian region not the stereotypes so we founded it in 2009 me and two other co-founders and we did it sitting around a kitchen table one night you know we we said I want I want to have a literary journal yeah me too okay let's do it and we found a free website and we and we solicited you know several people that we knew who were writing and we you know we put it up pretty quick so um so yeah that's been going on since 2009 and that's kind of our major goal we we want to celebrate diversity and the creativity of Appalachia.
0: Great. Would you like to read um Barn Dance Chorus?
1: Sure. Um Barn Dance Chorus uses all of the names that women were given um no I'm sorry that's um Wait a minute. Yes, yes. Barn Dance Chorus is, uh, uses all of the names that were given to these women performers by men. So almost every noun that you hear that is some sort of name was an actual name of an actual performer. So this is Barn Dance Chorus, and the epigraph is from musician Kathy Fink and her song title, Little Darling's Not My Name. Barn Dance Chorus. It's not cousin, gal, honey, or sweetheart. Not little miss, little maid, little Joe, little shoe, little sunbonnet. Our names aren't sister, girl, lady, or aunt. Listen, we had to play like one of the boys, cards, drinking, jokes, to hold our own on radio at whistle stops, barn dances, schoolhouses, church meetings, and every blazing county fair in all the states they used for our names. Montana, Louisiana, Texas. Don't call us Bluebird, Songbird, Nightingale, Cricket. Not Sunshine, Moonshine, Violet, or Sugar. Not Brown Eyes, Black-Eyed Susie, Daisy, or Laughin' Lindy. Listen. If you want us, say the names our mothers gave us. Recall how we really were, raw boned, standing spread-legged while we headlined those mean stages.
0: Thank you. Yeah, that's wonderful. I feel like one of the things that this poem brings out that's maybe implicit in some of the other ones you've read is just that double standard between you have to be, you know, when you're on stage, you have to be. Sweet little Miss Sunbonnet, and yet Mm -hmm. they also had to be tough. I mean, Loretta Lynn was a tough woman; is a tough woman, you know. Uh, uh, Dolly Parton's a tough woman. Uh, Hazel Dickens is 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 a tough woman. So I I feel like that's really in there the the idea of you have to hold your own with the boys, but you also have to let them feel like men or something like that, you know.
1: Right, and you know maybe some of that has not changed all that. Uh, specifically in terms of being a performer of any kind, you know, as a performer, you do have a particular persona. It's why we become so disappointed, you know, when, when Eric Clapton acts like a fool, you know, and, Mm -hmm. um, because his persona tells us that he's this genius guitar player, you know. But then in reality, you know, he's he's an anti-vaxxer. And so what, what do we do with that? You know, how do we respond to that? I mean, I had the same trouble with Loretta Lynn. You know, she supported Trump. And I didn't want Loretta Lynn to support Trump. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't want, you know, I, I had trouble with that that part of her politics but her persona on stage is different than that so yeah. yeah you know that's just um maybe that's just part of being a performer that people develop these ideas of who you are supposed to be mm-hmm. and then and then when reality sets in i think that that can disappoint us or shock us or you know whatever embarrass us
0: <laughs> i always thought it was really smart of dolly parton to never be explicit about her politics because yes. i feel like i know people who are convinced that she's basically a marxist and then other yeah. people who are convinced that she's this you know conservative uh you know country lady and and there's there's textual justification for both of those points of view there, i mean
1: yes there absolutely is but yes she's been very smart about that
0: yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. even if i wish she'd be a little bit more i don't know I wish she'd committed. agree. I wish she'd agree yeah. with me a little bit more, <laughs> more vocally. I guess. Right. Yeah. I mean,
1: you know, even though she gave a million dollars to Vanderbilt Hospital so that the vaccine could be sped up and developed, she didn't. She's never said, uh, "vax" or "anti-vax." You know, she's never. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> um, would you like to read a "Ballad"?
1: Sure. <laughs> So this part, this poem goes into a, a later part of the book where um, I've combined um, some stories from my family history as well as um, some poems about nature. Um, and so this is the beginning of one of the latter sections, which still has some connections to music. Mm-hmm. Ballad. Sycamore's. Jut above a daybreak wet with steam. The groundhogs are making coffee. The heron flies above the tree line, drumstick legs stretched rigid, wing flap on the upbeat like a crooked song wounding the sky. A family of house finches makes a dust bath in the gravels at the end of my driveway. They strum and pluck every shimmering day while the worm entombs, while the bud weeps on the vine. I've been broadcasting seed in memoriam. My mother loved the killdeer. Her mother despised the blue jay, the melancholy of its cries, like a wretched old love song hummed over and again.
0: Mm, Thank you. Um, I'd love to ask kind of um, about that connection between the later material in the book, which is more personal. You mentioned it includes a lot of nature poems. Um, Mm -hmm. What do you feel like, why did you want to put this in the same book with a poem about the Carter family?
1: Well, the, the truth is, is that the, the girl singer poems or the poems that were explicitly about, um, women singers, or that had some sort of murder ballad uh, feel, those poems were originally going to be a chapbook, you know, a smaller version Mm -hmm. of this book. And so I just didn't, I really just didn't have enough other music poems written and ready to go. And so I just um, decided with the help of my editor that um, I could make these connections between music and song and nature and my own family which maybe those connections are only clear to me and maybe not to the reader but <laughs> um, but I do see them and and that's one of the things also um, since both of my parents are, are now gone um it's, it's been really important to me to remember them in poems. And I wanted to do that. Um, I wanted to remember the, the musical things that they gave to me and also how to pay attention to nature, how to work and how to pay attention to nature. My mother loved birds. She loved them. And we would sit on her porch or my porch for hours and just look at our field guides to birds and, mm. you know, watch the birds. And she had a whole kind of circus of crows trained that lived in her neighborhood. And what? <laughs> Yes. Yes. And listen, these crows, they had lived, they've lived there for decades. They still live there because my daughter bought my parents' house after they died. And so my daughter lives there now. And these crows, they just keep staying generation after generation. There's about a core of about eight of them that travel and live together. And so... Yes. Mother started feeding them. And so they would see her come out on the porch and they would start hollering. And also they have really distinct cues for when I would come out of the house or when one of the dogs would come out of the house or when my mother would come out of the house. If you listen carefully, you can hear how different the calls are, you know. Mm-hmm. And and also I know you. nobody believes this, but they knew my car. So when I would turn the corner to head to my mother's house, I would hear them and see them. One of them would start squawking and then they would all fly over into her yard when I would... um, driving to the driveway. So, wow. <laughs> so, you know, that connection of um, being with my mother and, and talking and listening for birds um, was important to me. Mm-hmm. So again, that may be a personal connection that maybe readers won't get, but I don't know. I just tried to bring music and um, vitality to all of the poems. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it so-
0: feels chronological too, that I imagine the 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 earlier poems, the girl singer poems, being kind of from the point of view of you as a child and listening to this music and watching these performers on TV and mm-hmm. kind of thinking through what does it mean to be a woman and an artist. Mm-hmm. And then it seems like in the later part of the book, it's sort of you almost performing that role of saying, now this is my turn to, you know, you're not singing country songs, but in a way you are.
1: Yeah. That's that's really insightful, Andy. Thank you so much for, for mentioning that. I hadn't really thought of it that way before. And you know, that's a great thing about writing a book of poems. Your readers tell you a lot about the poems that <laughs> you can't see yourself or yeah. you don't understand yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Uh, a lot of the poems are from the point of view of my childhood or when, you know, growing up in Knoxville. Um, and then the later poems are about I don't know. I just, after my parents died, I got a lot of satisfaction and a lot of, um, soothing, uh, qualities. And it sort of quelled my grief to think about birds and to write about Mm -hmm. birds, Mm -hmm. you know?
0: So are there, are there kind of nature poets or nature poems that you find yourself kind of returning to over and over?
1: Um, yes. Well, um, in general, um, I would say, for instance, um, I like the poems of W.S. Merwin because mm-hmm. there's a lot of nature in his poems. But I also just sought out and read um, poems that had been written about birds, as many as I could find, you know. Mm. Um I think uh, Wendell Berry, who's a Kentucky, uh, native Kentuckian, is also um, very tied up with nature poems. Um, and I've, I've looked to his work as well. Um, I love the work of Robert McFarlane, who is a British writer. He's not a poet, but he writes so beautifully about the natural world. When I found McFarlane's work, which was probably about five years ago, I just couldn't get enough. And um, what he writes about nature is just astonishing. Um, So anybody who wants to read about nature, I would recommend Robert McFarlane uh, as a a go-to, even though he's not uh, necessarily a a poet. He's a nonfiction writer.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure I've ever heard that name before. So thanks for the recommendation. Sure. Um, Would you like to read Put Upon by Grief?
1: Uh, yeah. So this illustrates what I was saying before about how, um, how kind of grief stricken I was and, and looking to nature to kind of help deal with that. And I was also unpacking, um, a lot of my mother's things that I had cleaned out from her house so that my daughter could move into her house. And I ended up bringing a lot of those boxes home. And then of course I didn't have space for them and they were in the garage for a long time, but um, that's kind of the genesis of this poem. So this is put upon by grief and the epigraph is from the poet, Robert Becker. And it reads, my dad, I miss you. Won't you give a sign? Make a joke at my expense? Put upon by grief. Send us a feather like the woman who in her worst sorrow begged for a gesture from her beloved dead and a velvet wisp of wing floated right down to her lap. So the story goes, but we have quit believing. Our traumas have been too brutal. We stand beat up and bruised. Starlings have hijacked our trees. And now the quarrel songs of crows and jays rout from the next ridge. Now the woodpeckers hammer in less hateful climes. Only mocking birds appear at ease. Now the unpacking and repacking. Now the stacking or hauling away. At dusk, bats plunge into our garages and can't find the way out. House wrens foul our storage boxes with their grassy bowls, their eggs spotted as rotting grapes. Now comes the sweating through a full tilt panic. Now is the shattering of our unfolding and breaking open. The hawk hunts in our ditches. Then hurdles headfirst into our walls, and the glory of it all flutters past us. We miss it, and are foregone. Send us a feather.
0: Thanks for that. That was lovely. Um, It was funny Mm -hmm. when you were describing the poem before you read it. You said that you were unpacking, and you sort of paused before you explained that you were unpacking boxes, and I. (laughs) Filled in, in my head that you were unpacking, you know, your, your feelings of, of grief or you're uh, unpacking your relationship with your mother. And then the fact that you're unpacking her literal possessions um, was a surprise, but they are sort of one in the same in the end aren't they when someone dies yeah, they are. And-
1: yes yes it's yeah. both literal and figurative and and i remember at the time so, kind of feeling like i was being betrayed by the birds and the animals you know that the the little house finch was making all these nests in the garage and making a mess and then the bats would come in at night and then they they couldn't get out and um and the the crows and the jays had seemed to have left me, you know, and I just felt betrayed in all of, in all of my grief. And I, and I know that's not true, but that's Mm -hmm. sort of how I felt, you know, that I really needed to find a feather to help me feel
0: better. But that's interesting because I feel like a lot of nature poetry is very serene, but nature isn't always serene, right? Nature can be annoying and, and can be a headache.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a writer who um, writes about environmental concerns for the New York Times. She's based in Nashville. Her name is Margaret Rinkle, R-E-N-K-L. And um, she um, talks about that, how she can look out from her office onto her backyard and look and watch nature as it happens, you know, and she had built this, I think it was a bluebird box that she had built and and nailed to a, to a tree trunk and um, a family had set up shop, you know, in the bluebird box. And then one day she saw a snake climbing up that tree and she knew Mm -hmm. that, you know, the eggs were going to get eaten, you know, that, that, that's part of nature. That's, you know, the, the bad and the good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, Marianne Worthington, I've already taken up so much of your time, but thanks so much for being on new books and performing arts to talk about your wonderful collection, the girl singer.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Andy. It was a, it was a thrill and an honor to be here. I appreciate it so much.
0: Well, thank you. I'm glad you were here.